We really do want to make that transition that way uh, as we come to the end of the worship time to just sing a, a small song, you know, even if it's only three or four lines, where we have the opportunity to pray uh, as we sing and ask God to speak to us through His Word, through the, the things that we're about to hear. Uh, worship certainly prepares our heart to hear the Word of God. It sets us in the frame of mind. It reminds us who God is. It allows us to recommend uh, God to one another, uh, and then we can sing together. And uh, I, I'm not sure there's anybody actually in the auditorium right now. So could we bring those lights up just a little, and well, even maybe just a lot, so that uh, folks don't feel quite as much freedom to just, you know, doze off. Because it is a rainy morning, and you know how that is on, on Sundays. We're looking forward to having the men back next week. Those of you who may be new here or here for the first time, our men are away on a float trip and uh, actually probably floated a lot more than they planned on with all the rain that came. They, some of them may have been floating in their tents for all we know, but uh, we're looking forward to having them back, and we hope that you'll come back again next week. And while we're talking about praying, and um, yeah, you, you, you should know that... Um, that there are folks in our church and, and folks that have been part of our church in the past who are going through some very, very difficult times, including some very serious surgery and, and even the loss of a child, which uh, I, I just can't imagine. And so we need to be praying for them. If you, don't, if you know the story, then you know how to pray. If you don't know the story, you still know how to pray uh, because uh, a, a broken heart can only be mended by the goodness of God. The, uh, and while you're praying, you, you might pray for me. Um, I've, uh, I've come to the end of my passport, not expired, but it's full, uh, just full of stamps. And so um, I, I discovered in between these trips that uh, the State Department doesn't work as quickly as it used to for one reason or another. And so um, uh, <laughs> as it stands right now, I will not have my, my passport in time, my new passport in time to make this next trip unless we pray. And so I'm looking forward to just uh, coming back one of these Sundays and saying, hey, <laughs> I got it and, and I'm good to go. And if you pray for that, that would, uh, that would be good for my heart as well. This morning, we'll be continuing our studies in Paul's second letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. And uh, this is actually part 54 and entitled, The Lord Knows Those Who Are His. And we'll be unpacking 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 to 19. Last week, we looked at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2, and we looked at those verses through the lens of a very short story in Judges chapter 3. And no one asked for their money back at the end of the service, at least that I know of. You may have been knocking on that door back there, but it was indeed a very short story, but but depictive of that entire book of Judges. And in that story, we heard about a man named Shamgar who served as a judge in Israel right after Ehud had been the judge. And perhaps you'll remember that we discovered a pattern as we looked at the life of Shamgar and the lives of the judges that, that followed one after the other. We looked at a pattern that, that spreads all across the book of Judges where, where Israel would make progress and then immediately begin to regress and that happened over and over and over again. And that pattern was simple but deadly. And it's important to note that the pattern actually began at the end of the book of Joshua, which is the book that immediately precedes the book of Judges. 
At the beginning of Judges, Israel started out following Yahweh, the one true God, and then God led them to victory because they were following Him. There's, that's something about being led by the Spirit of God. You have to follow Him in order to have the experience that He has planned for you. If you decide to go off in your, on your own and in another direction, then, then, well, then you can't expect that same kind of experience where you're being led in things. Um, uh, uh, but then after that initial victory there in the book of Judges, the people of Israel turned their backs on God, on Yahweh, and began serving false gods. Notice that they were not worshiping the false gods. They were serving the false gods. And that's an important distinction. Worship is reserved for the one true God alone. And that's why we never speak of people worshiping false gods. Because false gods don't qualify to be worshipped, though the evil spirits behind them do demand to be served. In any case, God reacted in a predictable way to Israel's decision to turn their back on him and serve false gods. He punished them for their choice. We say that in part because we know, especially from Old Testament stories, that God hates sin and punishes sinful people. But we also know that God punished Israel for serving false gods because of an exchange that took place at the end of the book of Joshua, the book right before Judges. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you may want to turn to Joshua chapter 24. If not, we have it up here on the screen. But as part of a review from last week, let's look at that passage that I just referred to from Joshua 24. Joshua says this, Now fear Yahweh and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. But if serving Yahweh seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors, the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as, but as for me and my house, here's Joshua, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve Yahweh, my house and I. Joshua has been speaking on Yahweh's behalf. They're at the beginning of this, of, the, of Joshua chapter 24, and you could go and read that on your own. But now Joshua raises his own voice against the false gods. Uh, when he tells Israel to serve Yahweh and to do what with the false gods? Throw them away. Just, just, just make rubbish of them. The, and these false gods the, the, were the gods that Abraham worshipped before God called him and set him apart and, and made promises to him. Uh, Joshua says that, tells them without hesitation that they should serve Yahweh. But if serving Yahweh is not something that they're interested in, he gives them this out, then they need to choose. All that's going to be left for them, if they're not going to serve Yahweh, then all that's going to be left for them is false gods. Either the false gods that Abraham served prior to his time when God called him uh, in Ur of the Chaldees on the other side of the Euphrates, or the false gods of the Amorites that had been left over in the land that they had just departed. False gods are usually evil spirits that are represented by an idol, and people do transactions with them and seek to appease them. It's a real world. Uh, we don't get to see much of it here in the United States, and, and that's a good thing, but it is everywhere animism raises its ugly head. That's where the false gods come out. In other words, if they don't choose to serve Yahweh, the one true God, 
they will only be left with those two choices, either the false god that Abraham served before or the false gods of the Amorites. And um, it, 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 as he's pointing out this difference here between false gods and, and the one true God, it reminds me of the conversations we've been having about the one true gospel and the false gospels that go along with it. And, and Joshua is asking them to choose. And I love it that right then and there in that part of the conversation, you see it there at the end, right then and there Joshua added that if they were asking him, then they needed to know that Joshua and his entire household would serve Yahweh. Joshua is making a decision on behalf of his entire household, who they will worship, whom they will serve. So there's the choice, worship, worship and serve Yahweh or go back to the false gods that Abraham once believed in or the Amorites presently believe in, at least at the time when, when Joshua had this conversation with Israel, Israel. And here we can add that the false gods that Abraham believed in, just to fill this out a little more, and the false gods of the Amorites might have gone by different names, but I can tell you from personal experience in the world of animism that all false, false gods, no matter their name, come from the same mind, the mind of hell itself. Whether you call the false, false god Beelzebub or Dagon or, or Baal or Ashtoreth or as the Bukalot call their, their former false god Agimung, they're all one and the same. And they've all come from the same hellish mind. So Israel has a decision to make based on the challenge that Joshua has just laid before them. That they worship and serve Yahweh alone. Throw away the other false gods. Worship and serve Yahweh alone like he and his household were planning to do. Or serve those false gods like many of them were already doing. So let's get back to the passage to see what Israel intends to do. And the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. It was Yahweh our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us and on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And Yahweh drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve Yahweh because he is our God. So what have they made up their minds to do? They're going to serve Yahweh for sure. This is at the end of the book of Joshua. That seems like a good decision, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like the moment is just kind of ripe here for Joshua to add a boy, add a girl, you know, yay for you, good idea, just a little bit of encouragement. But truth be told, Joshua knows the difference between announcing intentions and actually following through on those intentions. As in the old adage, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Good intentions. It's easy to have good intentions. It's another thing to follow through. And Joshua has already seen a tendency among the people from Israel to announce their intentions without following through on those intentions. So Joshua is about to take it upon himself to warn Israel about the consequences that will follow if they don't follow through on what they've said. Look at the next part of the passage. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve Yahweh. He is holy. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, no, we will serve Yahweh. 
Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve Yahweh. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Joshua has once again made it clear. This is not a both and thing. You cannot serve both Yahweh and other gods because Yahweh is holy and jealous. In other words, if you intend to serve him, he will not allow you to serve other gods. So Joshua's thrown down the gauntlet, and Israel's thrown down too, so it's time to ante up. It's time for Israel to put up or shut up, and if they were playing poker, then Joshua is about to let them know the ante. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you, and yield your hearts to Yahweh, the God of Israel. (coughs) And the people said to Joshua, we will serve Yahweh, our God, and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded all these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of Yahweh. Now, at this point, we know something about the people of Israel. They had false gods in their possession. They had false gods in their homes, And that's why Joshua has just said, throw away, throw away the old gods, the foreign gods that are among you. Throwing away the false gods gods is Israel's ante, and that large stone that Joshua has just set up is Yahweh's ante, and it's time to bring this passage to a conclusion. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words Yahweh has said to us. It has will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. Joshua dies in the next verse. He's buried in the land of his inheritance, and after Joshua's death, we read these words. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And that's how the book of Joshua ends And then the book of Judges begins, and almost immediately that pattern that we talked about last week emerges. As Israel begins to repeatedly turn their backs on Yahweh to serve other gods. And this conversation between Joshua and and the people of Israel about false gods and the one true God reminds me of what we've been talking about, the false gospels and the one true gospel. In Israel's case, they clearly had good intentions, but somehow they never managed to follow, on, follow through on their good intentions to throw away the old and foreign gods and to serve the one true God. And in response to that failure, God used another nation, you remember that from the story, used another nation to punish them, and that would cause Israel to repent and cry out to the Lord to deliver them, and then God would raise up a judge, and the judge would lead them to victory as, as, as the judge followed Yahweh into battle, and, and, then, and then they would continue to serve Yahweh until, well, you remember the pattern from last week. You know the rest of the story. And as much as we hate to admit it, the book of Judges is a commentary on human nature. It's a commentary on human nature and our natural tendency to want to make life work without God. We all suffer from that. We all inherited that from Adam. The desire to make life work without God. The desire to be independent and to make our own choices. 
We don't want to have to listen to the Spirit of God on a moment-by-moment basis. We want instead to establish our own righteousness, our own independence along the way. That's why we find it especially appealing when someone comes along to teach us that we are not hopelessly helpless sinners in need of a Savior. That, That has a nice ring to it. There are ever so many woke Bible teachers who say, you're basically a good person. You are basically a good person, and all you need to do to be right with God is to bring out that deep goodness on a daily basis. Let's just get busy with that. That's the content of so many of the podcasts, so much of the Bible teaching that you hear on the web. In other words, the message of the false gospels are all the same. They teach that there's no real need for the gospel or the finished work of Christ because you have what it takes. You're basically good. And even God has said that you're basically good. And you need to believe that. But the truth is, God has said no such thing. Not in his word. God has said no such thing. In fact, he has said just the opposite. In the message of the true gospel, God has made it clear that without the finished work of Christ, we are hopeless, helpless sinners. And that means that we are faced with a choice between those two messages. (coughs) excuse me and last week Paul encouraged us to choose to do our best to present ourselves to God as workers who don't need to be ashamed and who rightly divide rightly correctly handle the word of truth and I I, I so want you to notice here that that um, Paul doesn't say do your best to present yourselves to God as as people who are not doing bad stuff He says, do your best to present yourself to God as people who rightly divide the word. Rightly divide the word, who rightly, correctly handle the word of truth. And correctly handling the word of truth speaks directly to the choice that's in front of us. In other words, we can be old-fashioned and stick to the message that Paul preached. The gospel of grace. Jesus died for us, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day for us. Or we can choose to be more contemporary, more modern, more woke, and, and, and preach a message that says that people are basically good and they, they need to live out that basic goodness that's within them. That is a much more encouraging message if you think about it. Of course, as we've often said, that message is a message that proclaims that we don't really need God, that we don't really need what Jesus did for us. We're able to manage this on our own. And in truth, that message is nothing more an old-fashioned humanism wearing new, more religious clothing that doesn't fit very well. By the way, just for the sake of getting our bearings this morning, and I'll say this, we may repeat it as time goes on, but for the sake of getting our bearings this morning, we should know that humanism, the woke movement, and the false gospels all grow from the same root. They all come from the same place. So this morning, we're faced with the choice of constructing our faith or deconstructing our faith, of of trusting Jesus or trusting ourselves, and of correctly or incorrectly handling the word of truth. I know that sounds like a lot of choices. It's not. It's just one choice expressed in different ways. We're faced with the choice of a twisted gospel that is really no gospel at all or the pure, still intact gospel of God's grace. And I can tell you for this morning, It is for me and my household, for me and my church, we choose the gospel, the pure, intact 
gospel of God's grace. And that said, it's time to get started unpacking the passage for this morning. And as always, we'll begin unpacking the passage for this week by reading it aloud together, which is always the best way to begin to unpack a passage. Even I do that. Before I start studying, I at least take the time to read it. So if you would stand with me as we read 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 to 19. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Thanks. You can all take your seats, and as you do, whisper another prayer. Ask God to speak to you through this passage this morning. This morning, I'm going to tell you a story from God's Word that is not really a story from God's Word. In other words, it's not told as a story in God's Word per se. It's rather a story about God's Word. And rather than going through any more verbal gymnastics, I'll just tell the story, and I think, or at least I, I hope you'll pick up on what I meant by what I just said, provided I actually understand it myself. But with that background, this is the story about God's Word from God's Word, and in, tic- and in particular, the book of Second Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Thessalonica, the letter that we now call 1 Thessalonians. And in that letter, Paul said, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another. With these words. What Paul's talking about here is something that we've come to call the, the rapture of the church or the day of the Lord or the resurrection of the saints or quite simply just the resurrection because we believe that Jesus' resurrection was in two parts. First, his resurrection from the dead and then the resurrection that we will all experience someday when he returns. The resurrection, and Paul's talking about the day when all true believers will be evacuated from planet Earth to be with the Lord forever. And Paul had said that the people in the church at Thessalonica should encourage one another with those words. They should encourage one another by reminding one another that Jesus is coming back someday. And those who have believed in Jesus will be caught up into the air along with our departed loved ones who who also believed in Jesus. In Jesus, it's going to be an, an incredible reunion. And then once we're reunited with our with the 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 dead, the the people who have died in Jesus, believing in Jesus, when we're reunited with them, we'll meet the Lord Himself right there in the air, 
and he'll take us from there to his home and we'll be with him forever. There are other things that Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, but we'll just look at that part because it has bearing on the story. And remember, Paul dictated his letters. You've heard me say that uh, often, I suppose. Paul dictated his letters. He didn't write his letters down. He didn't write down 2 Thessalonians with his own hand. He didn't write down 1 Timothy. He didn't write his letters down with his own hand except for his letter to write the Galatians. Uh, Forgive me for expecting you to know that when this is the first time today that I've mentioned it. Paul wrote Galatians with his own hand. He was so worked up about the work of the false teachers in Galatia that he he couldn't wait around for an amanuensis, for someone to, to take dictation from him. And so he wrote with his own hand. And Paul wrote with very large letters. We don't know if it's because of his, his vision or, or because of his, uh, you know, a fine motor skill kind of a problem that he was having. But he wrote, he, he did not write, he wrote Galatians with his own hand, but the rest of the letters he did not. So Paul wrote all... Paul dictated all of his letters except the letter to the... See, I knew that you knew that. I, I, was, I was counting on it. I was actually planning to say good job when you got it the first time. So let me just say good job now. And the next, it's going to be on the quiz. So, you know, just, let's just do that. All that to say that the churches that received letters from Paul would not have recognized his handwriting, but they would have recognized Paul's signature. And that's because, with the exception of Paul's letter to the Galatians, all of Paul's letters were written down by someone else, but Paul always signed them with his own hand. We know that from Scripture. He always signed them with his own hand. And that's what opens the door for the mystery that unfolds in 2 Thessalonians. So, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Thessalonica that we call 1 Thessalonians. And then he wrote a second letter to the church at Thessalonica that we now call second. Boy, you, wow. I'm, 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 I'm going I'm to go to sleep tonight, a happy man. Second Thessalonians. But in between those two letters, listen, in between first and second Thessalonians, letters that came from Paul, the church at Thessalonica actually received another letter from Paul. Only this other letter was not from Paul. It was actually written by someone who was pretending to be Paul. (laughs) In other words, the plot thickens. Now, it's clear from 2 Thessalonians that the guy that wrote that bogus letter, that in-between letter that was from Paul but wasn't from Paul, the guy that wrote that bogus letter had actually read 1 Thessalonians, especially that letter that we, that part that we read earlier about the day of the Lord, the rapture of the church, or the resurrection. This bogus author read that letter about the rapture, and he knew that that would encourage people. He knew that it would encourage people to continue to believe in Jesus, to continue to believe the gospel, to continue to trust the finished work of Christ instead of trusting themselves, and to continue to share the gospel with other people. But the guy that wrote that bogus letter, that one in between, didn't want people to be encouraged with those things. He much preferred that God's people be discouraged from believing the gospel. So he set a plan in motion to deconstruct and and destroy their faith. Think about this with me. If some people 
believe in Jesus and are encouraged by the idea that someday Jesus will come again and take them home to be with him, what would be the best way to discourage those people? Well, rather than have you waste too much time on being dishonest and deceitful, let me suggest something to you because this is how it went down. What if, someone were, what if someone were to write a letter to those encouraged people and what if that person were to pretend to be Paul? And what if that person were to say in that letter that the rapture, the, the resurrection had already happened and the people who didn't actually belong to Jesus had been left behind? Well, if you're sitting there reading that letter, you've, re- you've read this letter and now you realize that you've been left behind you would have no choice but to believe that the true gospel you believed before was actually a false gospel. You st- are you still tracking with me? And remember, the guy that wrote that bogus letter pretending to be Paul wrote it so that you would have no choice but to conclude that Paul had changed his mind and was now preaching a new gospel, a different gospel, because you think the letter's from Paul. Whoa. Talk about lower than low. And if you believe that bogus letter was from Paul, I think that might have been discouraging for any of us. We'd be discouraged because we believed what was true, but we've just learned that what we believed was not actually true. It was wrong to believe the gospel that Paul preached when he was here with us. In other words, that bogus letter would destroy your faith. How? By deconstructing what you believe. And it gets worse. If you believe that bogus letter that destroyed your faith, you would have to also believe whatever else that bogus letter said because whatever it it was that you believed before is now gone and all you have left is what's in this fake letter that you think is from Paul. In other words, your life has taken a serious turn for the worse because in one fell swoop, you've lost everything you once believed. It's all gone. So to somewhat, sum up, someone wrote a letter pretending to be Paul, and in that letter they said that the rapture, the day of the Lord, the resurrection had already happened. Keep that in mind. That letter, that teaching destroyed the faith of some people who had at one time truly believed the gospel, the good news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and so they began to look for something else to believe Instead of believing the true gospel, they stepped away. They turned away. They turned their backs on the true gospel to chase something that was false, thinking that they were doing the right thing. Now, that's a problem. And in fact, that's the problem that Paul sought to fix when he wrote 2 Thessalonians. That's one of the things he addressed. And how did Paul fix it? Well, I love this because he wrote this at the end of his real second letter to the Thessalonians. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. You catching it? How does Paul fix the problem of the bogus letter? Well, he says, in essence, I get it. You didn't recognize my handwriting because you've never, I, 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 I dictated my letter. Somebody else wrote it down. And so as you read it, you didn't have the opportunity to recognize my handwriting. But even if you didn't recognize my handwriting in the letter, you could have looked at the signature at the end of the letter 
that bogus letter, and you would have known immediately that that letter was not from me because it didn't have my signature. And you could have known, since the letter wasn't from me, you could have known that it was not true. And, 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 but, and, and this is an important point, Paul says something very important in that real second letter to the Thessalonians. He says, even if you didn't see my signature, you should have known that that bogus letter was not true. Why? Because it contradicted the gospel. The moment you ran into anything in that letter that contradicted the gospel, you should have stopped reading it. You should have thrown it aside. Even if it was from me, you should have thrown it aside because it contradicted the gospel. And I wish that we would learn that pattern here in our church because the po- we, we can't stop the podcast. We can't argue with the podcast. But there are so many out there that actually contradict the gospel. And when that happens to you, turn it off. Do not develop a devotion to a teacher who is going to contradict the gospel. Once that happens, be done with it. Throw away those old gods. We also know that since the gospel lies at the center of everything that's true, we also know that that anything that contradicts the gospel is automatically and ultimately false. In fact, false teaching. It is false teaching because it contradicts the gospel. And that's the story about God's word from God's word. Having told you that story, there are two things that I want to say as we unpack this passage for this morning. Sometime today or tomorrow or during the week when you have a few minutes, you should take a few minutes and read 2 Thessalonians and get involved in sleuthing out what, Paul, what had happened between 1 and 2 Thessalonians and what Paul does. I, I, I love that sort of thing when I'm studying God's Word, when you find these little cues and help you to under, that help you to understand what's behind it. Secondly, as we unpack this passage this morning, we're going to learn the likely identities of the men who wrote that bogus letter. And by writing that letter, caused such a mess in Thessalonica and Ephesus and, and a whole bunch of other churches. So let's get to it. Let's start by saying that when false teaching raises its ugly head and when false teaching begins to spread, it's easy to want to confront the false teachers and argue your case with them. But Paul has a better solution. Look at verse 16. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Does Paul say to argue with the false teacher or the false teachers, or does he say to to prove them wrong? No, he says what? Avoid it. Just, Just avoid it. Paul calls false teaching godless chatter, and in a moment, He's going to compare it the way that false teaching spreads to the way that gangrene spreads. One of my favorite words in the English language, gangrene. Now, I have to admit that that I went looking for some pictures of gangrene to see if we could get some sense for for what what Paul is talking about here. But having searched uh, for pictures of gangrene, let me give you some advice. Don't ever search for pictures of gangrene, especially if you've just eaten. Don't, just don't do it. I had my safe search setting set to moderate, which of course screens out explicit content. And because of that, there really weren't any pictures of gangrene that weren't blurred out because gangrene is explicitly gross. I mean, it, it just is. 
And according to what I can gather from other websites, when true gangrene invades the body, the human body through a limb, for example, there is no treatment for gangrene other than to amputate the gangrenous limb. In other words, doctors don't argue with gangrene. And they don't fight with gangrene. They simply accept that the only thing that they can do is amputate the limb, cut the gangrene out of and off of the body. And I know that's explicit, and it's gross, and I wouldn't have said it. I promise I would not have said it like that if it weren't for what Paul says when we add the first part of verse 17 to verse 16. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Gangrene spreads through the body until it has destroyed the body, and that's why when a doctor encounters gangrene in someone's arm, for example, the doctor will not fight the gangrene. He or she will simply eliminate the gangrene from the body by amputating the arm, and the doctor may very well say, we cannot save the arm, but we can save your life. This is what it's going to cost. So Paul says that false teaching spreads like gangrene, and because of that, we should not argue with the false teachers. Instead, we should avoid them. But what kind of false teaching are we talking about here? We're talking about anything that contradicts the gospel, or anything that undermines or deconstructs or destroys the faith that people have in the true gospel of grace. And to understand that, I want to remind you of the story that we told about 2 Thessalonians. I want to remind you that there was a guy, that some guy or, or guys pretended to be Paul, remember, and, and wrote a letter to the church of Thessalonica. And in that letter, what did they say? The rapture of the church, the day of the Lord, the resurrection had already happened. And all those who belong to Jesus are already gone. So if you're still here, since the day of the Lord, the rapture has already happened, that proves that you don't belong to Jesus. And if you don't belong to Jesus, that proves that the gospel that you believed was not the true gospel. You tracking with me so far? If you are, then look what Paul says when we add the rest of verse 17 and verse 18 to what we've already read. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. He names names who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place. And they destroy the faith of some. So who was Paul talking about in 2 Thessalonians when he talked about that bogus letter from someone that someone had written claiming that Jesus had already returned to earth? Most likely he was talking about Hymenaeus and Philetus. And you may recognize the name Hymenaeus because Paul talked about him in 1 Timothy and the damage that he was doing with his false teaching. And what was the content of the teaching of Hymenaeus and, and Philetus? Well, they taught that Jesus had already returned. And that's the very issue that Paul talked about in 2 Thessalonians. And why did he liken their teaching to gangrene? Because Hymenaeus and Philetus had been infected with false teaching and had in turn infected others with that same false teaching. That's how it works. And their false teaching had continued to spread like gangrene and it destroyed the faith of some of the people there in the church at Ephesus just as it, as it had destroyed the, the faith of people in the church there at Thessalonica. And, and based on all of that, 
What do you suppose we should do if we encounter false teaching in our church or on our television or in, uh, as we're listening to podcasts or as we're, and I, you know, I, I, we've talked about it. I'm not sure that we've, we've all realized the danger that that creates for us. But once you start listening to something and you begin to think, I wonder if this is actually, that didn't sound quite right. Ask some questions. Talk to somebody. But when you discover that they're contradicting the gospel of God's grace, just stop listening. You don't have to go on a crusade. You don't have to go on a crusade. We shouldn't argue with it, but we should avoid it. But that leads to a question. It leaves me with a question, and it's a question that I've, I've often encountered, I've often been asked during my years in ministry, and the question goes something like this. My child or my spouse or my friend used to believe the gospel, but now they say that they don't believe the gospel anymore. And they even say that they don't believe in God anymore. So will I see my child, my spouse, my friend in heaven? And I know that's a profoundly deep and important question, but I want you to know that the answer to that is really quite simple. And it's found right here in verse 19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. If your child, your spouse, your friend truly believed the gospel, truly believed in Jesus and trusted His finished work, and then at some point fell victim to a false teacher, we can hope that they avoided that false teaching, but if they did not avoid it, they may well have decided to no longer believe the gospel. Remember, false teaching and true teaching cannot coexist in one church or one heart any more than false gods and the true God can coexist in one heart. So we must choose. And that means that some like your child, your spouse, or your friend may choose the wrong thing. But if they did indeed once believe the true gospel, then you can be absolutely confident that while they no longer claim to have any relationship with Jesus, God's word is very clear. The Lord knows those who are his. Eternal life is eternal life. And if God has given someone eternal life, then they have eternal life. And anyone who has eternal life can never die. And while you may not be able to see that in them, you can be confident that the Lord knows those who are His. So they may have deconstructed their own faith and they may be actively destroying the faith of other people, but if they at one time believed the gospel, then you can be sure that the Lord still knows those who are His. If they truly believe the gospel at one time, then they may have abandoned their faith in God, but God has not abandoned his faith in them. That relationship is still secure. So what does that mean? I mean? Come on. Does that mean that we can trust Christ at one point in our lives and then just walk away from the gospel and still be saved? Yep, that's what that means. That's exactly what that means. So then why don't we all just walk away from the gospel. Why don't we just agree together that this has taken too much time? I mean, 
Think about how long I've been talking about it right now. This is just taking too much time. We, can, we could just walk away and, and not... Why don't we all walk away from the gospel? Well, if we're wondering why we don't all walk away from the gospel, it's because there are two inscriptions on the foundation of our lives. The foundation that God built in your life has two inscriptions on it. And, and if we read the rest of verse 9, we'll, we'll see both of them. Nevertheless... God's foundation stands firm there in verse 19, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Surely you saw that in the story that we looked at earlier from Joshua chapter 24. If you're going to claim to belong to the Lord at some point, then you have to turn your back. On wickedness. So if we believe the gospel, if I believe the gospel, I can be confident that God knows that I belong to Him. And if I've believed the gospel, I can be confident that since I confess the name of the Lord, I must turn away from wickedness. And wickedness, I know, is a broad term, and, and Paul is likely referring to a, a wide range of things, but we can be sure from the context, the very the very verses that we're looking at, that the primary thing he's referring to here is false teaching. I mean, think about how wicked it was that Hymenaeus and Philetus told people, they, they didn't say that Paul was wrong, that Jesus isn't coming back. They said Jesus has already, come, has already returned. A bold-faced lie in order to manipulate the thinking of the people that they were talking to. That is incredibly wicked. So he's talking about false teaching when he talks about this wickedness. Paul's already told us not to indulge in false teaching, because it leads to ungodliness. It causes us to, to depart from the truth, and it destroys our faith. And if we pull this all together, the story from Joshua, the story from Judges, the story from Second Thessalonians, and this passage this morning in Second Timothy, then one thing is clear. We have a choice to make this morning and every morning. As you crawl out of bed in the morning, you can choose to keep the gospel intact and pure in your heart and in the hearts and lives of your families and in the hearts and lives of your church. Or we can choose to allow false teaching to spread like gangrene in our midst. So you have a choice, a decision to make. And, and to sort of quote Joshua, let me just say, as for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh and continue to preach the good news that we are all helpless, hopeless sinners, but Jesus was punished in our place and died for us. As for me and my household, by God's grace, we will always choose what is true over what is false. And I hope that you can say that for yourself and for your household as well. So, what do you choose? This morning, what does all that make you want to do? In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are His, and everyone 
who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we thank you this morning for the goodness that you've shown us. Thank you for these good people and, and, and the, the foundation that you've built in their very hearts. God, I trust that I'm talking to a room full of people who have, have believed the good news that Jesus has died for them, that he was buried and that he rose again. I trust that I'm talking to a room full of people who understand that anything that contradicts that message is something that we should just discard and set aside cut out like gangrene. God, we don't want to be unkind. We don't want to be brutal with other people. But Father, we do want to protect our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our church and the generations to come so that God, 50 years from now, this place will still be a citadel of the truth where the good news about Jesus is proclaimed, where that becomes the seed from which grows all kinds of amazing things as we learn to continually turn our back on wickedness and to follow your spirit into ever-increasing righteousness until the day we see your face. And God, we've been talking about the return of Jesus. And Lord, we just want to say, we are waiting for you. We are ready for you to come back. And we pray that you would energize us and send us out into that world out there with this encouragement, this deep, profoundly deep encouragement that Jesus is coming again and he's going to take the people that believe in him out of this old world and join them together with generations before. God, there's, there's just so much to that and it all comes to us. That tree, that fruit grows from the seed that you planted in our hearts, the good news that Jesus died for us, was buried and rose again. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have of coming into your presence. And thank you that whenever we talk to you, you have given us the privilege of mentioning the name of Jesus to you when we pray. Amen and amen. Well, we're, uh, we're headed out the door. And I, I know you won't leave if I don't say this, so I'm just going to say it. But, uh, and and, and uh, is there anybody out there that needs to hear the good news that you just heard? If you know somebody, this would be a really good week. I don't know what else you have planned, but I'm pretty certain that it's not as important as that possibility, sharing the good news with them. So ready? Whoa, whoa, whoa! Man! Ready? Go get him, Potter's house.